thank y'all very much. Uh, worship team, appreciate y'all every week. And uh, we do, I echo Mike's welcome to a lot of folks that are here to celebrate our, our graduates today. We're excited about that, and we will recognize them a little bit later in the service. But today, I am honored to be able to introduce to you our, our speaker for the day, Dr. Leroy Lawson. And uh, he spent a weekend with our eldership um, and helping us uh, um, through some difficult times that we're going through and helping us in our leadership and he has been with us before and we really appreciate him and some of y'all probably remember in February he was here for our marriage night and uh, we remember a lot of your great stories and encouraging us in our in our marriage so we ask him to come back so uh, Dr. Lawson um, comes from Tillamook Oregon is where he originates from and he is now um, lives in Wentzville, Missouri, outside of St. Louis. He'll tell you a little bit more about that. But um, Dr. Lawson um, has been a professor at Milligan University and at uh, Emanuel Christian Seminary, who we're familiar with and have supported for years. Um, he was a, a senior minister at uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, at a church there, and then for several years, I think 20 years, in Mesa, Arizona, while at the same time was the president of Hope International University, and that tells you what kind of guy he is. Uh, but most importantly, as I said in the first service, he is a follower of Jesus Christ, and God has gifted him and given him a passion for encouraging and challenging and equipping people in their walk with Jesus Christ. So help me um, welcome this morning Dr. Leroy Lawson. Thank you, Craig. I did a bad thing. I, I, uh, I'm having to readjust my mini iPad here because it was left at the end of the sermon, and I don't want to start there. I want to explain, by the way, why I'm using a, a, an iPad. Didn't do that for a long time. But I'm using it now for two reasons. One is because I want to be cool. <coughs> And the other one is I can get the font up big enough that I can see it from here. So <laughs> I've just had the best weekend here. I, I want to tell you a little bit about my association with this church. I first heard about you, had to be in the 80s, when I was on the uh, Standard Publishing Committee with Jim Dyer. And we had conversations and he explained the vision. I know it was before the hospice because the conversation was about the start of the hospice, and I was so impressed with, with his vision for this church and loved working with him. And then I got to be a, a colleague of, of Jim Donovan because he was president at Atlanta when I was president out on the West Coast. So we got together and still do get together on the CMF board, and that's been fun. And then along came this youngster named Craig and I cannot believe, he told me how old he is now, and I cannot believe it, because when you started, you know, I thought maybe you were just out of kindergarten, and you've just, <laughs> you just matured magnificently. <laughs> so I've been watching this church, and, 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 uh, and there, by the way, there's Mike back in the back. I also get to work with, with Mike now on the CMF board and with Global Scope. So I've got all these connections that, that I'm, I'm just so enjoying, and I've just had the best weekend. I'm kind of on a high because I was with, you ever with some people that when you walk away, you just think you are better because you've been with them. That's how I felt about the time with, with your leaders. The commitment to this church, 
the desire to see this church uh, flourish uh, and to go into a productive, service-oriented future for Christ, I just, I'm just, <laughs> many pearl uses it, I'm just so proud to be here <laughs> with you all. Um, I, I want to talk to you today about my grandkids and yours. One of the, the subject of this sermon is a church fit for my grandkids. You can imagine uh, the challenge it is for an octogenarian to try to communicate with young people. I had a, an experience uh, a few just a, just a few years ago. I was the I was the campfire speaker at a high school camp. I was terrified. How can somebody propped up by a cane talk to a bunch of high school kids around the campfire night after night? So I've been doing quite a bit of thinking about the, the generation gap and the generation gap with my own grandkids. So I want to talk today about the church, which has several generations. How can the old generation and the young generation be in the same church and communicate with each other? That's the dilemma of the American church as a whole today. And I know it's a challenge for an older church like this one. How can this church appeal to young people and us old timers at the same time? Can we satisfy both sets of expectations? I've got a, a few suggestions to make. They may make us a little bit uncomfortable because it's going to require something of all of us. But I've been, I've been preaching and teaching on this subject for many years now. And I cannot do so without telling you about the church I grew up in, my home church. Craig told you I'm from Tillamook, Oregon. Anybody know about Tillamook cheese? That's my hometown. That's where I'm from. Tillamook, land of cheese, trees, and ocean breeze, and mud up to your knees, and weather that makes you sneeze and wheeze. That's my hometown, where we are outnumbered at least two to one, maybe three to one by the cows. But in that hometown, that humble hometown in western Oregon, was a great, great church. And I got to grow up in that church. In my judgment, they were people who did it right. Now, I took them for granted when I was young. But, but this church was such a welcoming place for us kids and us teenagers. It became my second home when in my, in my teen years, my parents' marriage finally, after years of struggle, uh, dissolved. And I was a pretty confused kid. But I was inspired because the church for me was a safe place. And they, they took care of me, not just me, all of us. It was a church that, well, it was a church that loved children, loved grand, uh, uh, children and, and, and teenagers. And we had parents and grandparents in that church. I want my grandkids to grow up in a church like the one their grandfather grew up in. So I'm talking this morning about a church fit for my grandchildren. Now that doesn't mean 
that I think our grandchildren's church should be like the one that I grew up in, and in externals, not at all, times change. When I grew up, there was the only thing on the platform was the pulpit. I now speak in church, and you, by the way, you are blessed in this. I now speak from time to time in churches where the pulpit has been all but squeezed out because you've got to make room for the drums and all that other stuff. It's going to change. And it's going to make some of us think twice about what we were and what we are and whether we should be. Well, this, this pleases me very much. And you'll know why by the time I get through this. This, this weekend, your leaders and I have been meeting to talk about the future of this church. As far as I was concerned, it was a productive, even inspiring meeting. Now I want to talk to all the rest of you about the future of this church. A church that will make the difference in the lives of young people so that when they're old and decrepit like me, they will be reminiscing about how it was in the church where they grew up. Many of the, of the influential people in my home church were not the elders or the pastors. They were just people. And they saw themselves as just people. But they were people who cared. They were, they were, they were people who, who knew how to let us young people know that they cared about us. Hmm. Now, a, a word to you older members. Among among pastors, when they get together sometimes and they're telling their tales of woe to one another, they will talk about the old people who are stuck in their ways, who are devoted to the past, who are resist, resistant to any change. I don't join in those conversations because that's not been my experience. No, Now, sure, there are some naysayers, but there are, there are naysayers in every generation. That's not a generational thing. But in every generation, you will find people who are not dedicated to their own comfort, but are dedicated to the Lord and dedicated to the church and dedicated <laughs> to people like my grandkids. And here's what I learned in the churches I served and in the one I came from. The people who could be counted on in the church to move the church forward were the grandparents. A welcoming place for the next generation. So I've been thinking a lot about my own grandkids, what my grandkids need. And, and, and we have a pretty big family. When people ask me, how many children do you have? I, I say, well, it depends on how you count. And that's because in addition to our biological offspring, over the years, with every ministry we've had, we've kind of taken in some more. Um, uh, the best example, I think, would be Brian. Though I could tell you many, I guess you will know, we've been doing this a long time, when I tell you that my oldest Velcro son is 77. <laughs> but when I was a 24-year-old pastor and he was a 16-year-old juvenile delinquent, we bonded. We are family to this day. And I've got more like those that I could tell you about Brian is the one that I really enjoy talking about because, because when we moved to Mesa, Arizona to assume the ministry there, he, uh, he was in high school, and he dated my daughter only once or twice, I think. It didn't last very long, 
But then I noticed he didn't go away. I woke up one morning. I found that he had spent the night sleeping on the couch in the family room. So I said to him, with what I thought was evident sarcasm, so Brian, you want to just move in? He did. <laughs> and he, he's never left us. And, uh, and we got lots of them like that. In fact, we have, a, we have a rule in our family. You cannot get into the Lawson Velcro family if you come from a functional family. The only qualification is you've got to be messed up in some way. We've got every kind of messed up in our family, and I'm so proud of that. Because that messed up family of mine has taught me about the church. One, uh, well, we have, a, we have an annual vacation week together, and we'll be now any, anywhere from 40 to 70 of us. We finish the night around the campfire. We tell, we tell stories and insult one another. And... Uh, just have the best time. One year we had, we had some visitors, and so I, I didn't usually take over the campfire. It was just kind of a spontaneous thing, but that year I did because of these visitors. And I, I said, would you mind going around the campfire and each one of you telling, how you, telling them how you got into the, this family and what keeps you here? And by the time they got all around the circle back to me, I was a basket case. I was so touched, and I thought to myself, this must be how God thinks about his big dysfunctional family. He wouldn't give up one of them. That's what I think about the church, God's big dysfunctional family, and he wouldn't give up one of them. Let me take you uh, to an interesting scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, my, my dear Velcro son. They were not blood kin. They were love kin. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. Three generations of faith. Now, how did that happen? I've asked that question for a lifetime. How does it happen? Because it doesn't always happen. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a priest named Eli, a godly man, the Scripture says. But just a few verses later in, 2 Samuel, in 1 Samuel, 2nd chapter, we read, Now the sons of Eli, this godly man, were worthless men. They had no regard for the Lord. Thus the sin of the young men was very great, in the sight of the Lord, for the men hate, treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now Eli was very old, and he heard that all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Eli was remembered as a good, saintly man. His sons are remembered for their immoral behavior, for their lack of fear of God, their lack of respect. So in some families... Generation after generation after generation, 
you trace the faith. You trace the quality. Other families, something goes wrong. I'm, I'm saying that to you now to say there's no guarantee. We know there's no guarantee. But there are some things that I think can keep the flame of faith burning from generation to generation. And a lot of it has to do with the kind of church experience, the kind of faith experience they see lived out in the lives of others. Another thing I've observed is there's a lot of uh, question about and dis uh, disaffection for the church on the part of younger people and probably because they've been disappointed or misled or frozen out or driven out by criticism. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have experienced it. But what I've discovered is that these folks who are unhappy with the church are not unhappy with Jesus. And I would like our focus to be on him. So let me dream with you about the church that I dream about for my grandchildren. Let me start by saying the church fit for my grandchildren will welcome them into a larger family of people who love them. I want them to have my experience. I had a, an interesting uh, insight. I gained an interesting insight about um, 12, 14 years ago. I was invited back to my home church because a couple of men were being ordained and they asked me to preach the ordination sermon, which I did very gladly. While I was doing my research, going through my files, I ran into the picture of my own ordination. So that day when I preached, I asked them, and behind me, they projected my ordination picture. There I was, looking about 12, and I was kneeling. The elders were placing their hands on me. I think there were about a dozen up there. And what hit me when I ran across that file, hadn't thought about it for a long time, I looked carefully at every man in that picture, and I could name everyone. I could even name what they did for a living. That was a 60-year-old memory. I was ordained in 1959. I still remember every name and what they did for a living. I was, just a, I was just a kid. Growing up in that church, they didn't pay particular attention to me, I, felt, I thought. I didn't pay particular attention to them. But the environment was a loving, welcoming, forgiving, graceful, graceful environment. And I, I, don't, I know I drove the, our, our Christian education minister crazy because in the high school, when the family was falling apart, every night after school, I went to the church. And they welcomed me. And loved me. And their impact on my life was indelible. If I had that picture before me now, I could tell you all about those people. They were so important. They had no idea I was paying that kind of attention to them, I know. <laughs> and what I've noticed about uh, this greater Atlanta area a, a group of Christian churches, uh, I've met a number of your leaders over the years. You, you've had the same experience here that I had. And I've, I've, I've sensed in the churches that y'all care about your kids and your grandkids. May that never change. 
You know what Jesus had to say about his family? This is in Matthew 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, and th this sounds so strange, without context. Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples. And he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Velcro family. Held together, not by blood, but by love. And mission. And commitment to one another and to the Lord. Closer, if you please, than blood kin. And one of the reasons I talk about my Velcro family is because it, I have experienced that. I've lost, over the years, I've lost touch with some blood kin. I'm not as close to them as I am to my Velcro kids, to my Christian friends. So Jesus' experience actually is mine, exactly. He's not putting down his mother. He's not putting down his brother. He's saying there is more to this family thing than you think. And it does have to do with choosing one another, with serving one another, with serving the Lord beside one another. So, in the church fit for my grandchildren, I want that. And I want them to learn who Jesus is and why he matters to them. Not enough to just have a relationship with other people, which I've been stressing, that is so important. But we need also to connect with eternity and with eternal values. I want my kids someday, my grandkids someday to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He is my Lord and my Savior. This relationship with Jesus will give them a foundation to build on, a measuring stick for judging all the claims to truth and all the fake news, all of that, because they know who He is and they know what His values are. And they know what he, want, what he wants of them. And I want them to know that because otherwise they will be sucked into a culture that is destructive. This, the militant evangelistic atheists today are pretty persuasive. But I listen to them and I think, but, 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 but what do they know about living life? The people I know with the richest life, the deepest life, the most gratifying life, the most loving life are the people that I grew up with in my home church. So I want my grandkids not only to know what's important, but who is. And the most important of all is Jesus. And I want them to understand the difference between essentials and non-essential. I want them to know what matters most and what doesn't matter at all. That's one of our great restoration movement pleas. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. <laughs> How much grief memorizing that little saying has saved me over the years. It has kept me from getting all hung up on stuff that doesn't matter. I've seen so many changes, and even in the church. In the era that I grew up in, well, my, my old preacher, 
kind of summarized it with a little ditty that he taught us. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls who do. Now, there's more, <laughs> there's more to life than that. But what he was helping us kids to understand is, uh, and that was all sarcastic, rather than feeling that you are superior over the little things that you do or don't do, he was teaching us to judge ourselves by the bigger things, the kind of things that Jesus was interested in when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the big thing. That's the essential thing. So what, what matters? Rather than taking our cues from the culture that we're in or the political party that we're a part of, evening news, social media, how do you know what matters? How do you know what's true? Well, my, my, my firm belief is that if we anchor ourselves in the word of the Lord and in the Son of God, he kind of, he kind of demythologizes our culture for us and helps us to know what matters. I want my, my, my grandkids to grow up in a church that will teach them that and teach them that it's so much more important to love one another than it is to win points in a debate. Hmm. Because my grandkids, now my great-grandkids, they've got some big decisions to make. What their career will be, who to fall in love with, how to hold a marriage together, what to do with the money you make, and to know how important or unimportant that money is. I want them to know who they should imitate. Probably this has never happened to any of you in this room, but there was a period when our, teen, our children were teenagers, and two of the three, in turn, were pretty well persuaded that their father was yesterday and just didn't know much about how to live. We call this the individuating process, the separating from the parents. It's a necessary part of growing up. And so when it hit my house, I wrote my kids a letter, each in turn, and said, I know that you think the time has come for you to be independent, but you still need a model. And I know I'm not the model now, and that's okay. But I recommend Jesus. I recommend Jesus. I still recommend Jesus as the model, not just for teenagers, but for all the rest of us, because it takes some of us a long, long time to catch on. I'm still trying to learn how to walk like Jesus. I'm not good at it. But I don't know anybody better to be my model for how I should live. All right. In the church fit for my grandchildren, they'll be able to worship in their own language. It's interesting to me today that I've now sat through this worship service twice. My goodness, there's a difference of language, music language, between the first service and the second service. Now you would understand which one I would feel more at home with because I'm of that generation. Uh, I, 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 want, I want my grandkids to be able to worship in their own language. 
speech, of course. We keep having newer translations of the Bible, which I'm in favor of because language changes, meaning, uh, meaning changes over time. So that's a good thing. My favorite Bible is still the King James Version. I read that when I was a child. I memorized it when I was a child. When I started preaching, I realized many people can no longer understand that language, so I switched to the, new, to the Revised Standard Version, and then a little later, I switched to the New International Version. But I have had some people in churches over the years that thought that I was a heretic because I had left the King James Version. I love talking to them about that, by the way. Because I would then ask, well, now, would you, would you expect your children to understand Shakespeare, to sit down and read the plays of Shakespeare and, and understand them? Well, no, of course not. Do you understand that the King James Version of the Bible came out in Shakespeare's time? That's Shakespeare's language. I just love doing that because it really put them down, and I felt so, so superior. No, I didn't. But that's not me. <laughs> so... The language between my generation and today's teenagers is quite different. I used to be an English teacher, by the way. Much of what I taught, I can't teach now. Because in the short lifetime of one person, our language has changed that much. The rules have changed that much. And now when I listen to teenagers talk, I'm not at all sure what they're saying. But then I remember how important it was when I was a teenager that the adults didn't understand what we were saying either. Language changes. It's really borne out in music. Music is something we'll never agree with, agree on. We never have. We sang songs as teenagers that had hidden meanings that we hoped our adults, our parents, wouldn't understand. I think that still goes on, but I don't know because I don't understand. The classic, I, what I do remember is that my parents didn't like my music. But the classic moment for me, I was driving with my son Lane, teenager. Radio was on. We were listening. Or he was listening. And they reached over and he cranked it up. Now listen to this, Dad. This is really good. And I listened to it. And it was really bad. <laughs> I had a moment for me. Uh, I, was, I was privileged last year to speak for Vicki Huxford's funeral. And uh, that took me back a few years when Y. Huxford was the interim minister over at the Mount Carmel Church. And he asked me to come and speak for homecoming, which I was pleased to do. They, they dismissed any school classes. They brought everybody together for two-hour worship service. It was marvelous. I, I went into the, into the uh, sanctuary as people were coming in. I saw Vicki at the organ, and I went over there, and I slipped into the pew behind her where I could watch her. And those of you who know Vicki, uh, you know what I was in for. What an organist. What magnificent music. And I sat there, this, this little old man behind her, hoping nobody would see my tears. That was my music. That was my language. That's what I grew up with and loved so deeply. Well, 
my grandkids would have thought that was pretty bad stuff. They speak a different music language. They speak a different oral language. And I do understand that they need to be able to worship in their language. We don't send missionaries, and this church is famous for your missions outreach. You don't send missionaries to other countries and teach them your language. You go to the other countries and you learn their language if you want to have a heart-to-heart -heart with them. So, Joy and, I, Joy and I now attend worship with our grandkids and our great-grandkids. We have a grandson on the worship team. <clears throat> By the way, a grandson on the worship team who, when he grew up, did everything wrong first and was saved by a youth pastor and a loving church who brought him back. And now we get to go to worship and see him up here singing. And I got to—I don't have to tell you what that means. Okay, one of my <clears throat> one of my heroes <laughs> that I met a number of years ago. I was speaking <clears throat> for a church in Southern Illinois, and um, I walked into the, the, the church in the evening before the evening service began, and up in front were I think about maybe a half a dozen kids, guitars they were playing, and and so I sat down beside a little white-haired lady about 70 years old, which seems quite young these days. Uh, <clears throat> and so we sat side by side listening to those kids, and, and uh, it was interesting. And after a while, I kind of leaned over toward her, and I asked, do you like this music? Oh, she said, I hate it. But I love these kids. That could be my sermon by itself. I want my grandkids to be challenged in the church to become their best selves. Church is not all about us, whatever our age. It is a call to love and to serve and to give because only in doing so will we become our best selves. If it's all about me, I will never become my best self. If it's all about my comfort, I'll stagnate. But if I'm in a church that constantly reminds me that life is about loving and serving and giving, ah, I will know something about how to live. Nothing, nothing in my elementary or junior high or high school experience challenged me the way my home church did. School was all about Preparing myself to be a, a good citizen, to make a good living, to have a fine career, to get ahead in the world. It was all about me. Church, on the other hand, was about preparing to dedicate my life to something that would make a difference in my community, in my world. Church called me to think about others besides myself, to enter into a much bigger world. Church is not fun and games, for any age. It's serious business. I mentioned that I was uh, on the CMF board now with, with Mike Harbin. What I should tell you is that a couple of years ago, um, at a board meeting, in fact, I think it was a board meeting in Atlanta, they, uh, <laughs> they presented me a, a plaque for 60 years of service with CMF. 
Only later did I, it dawn on me that they did that in hope I would now resign from the board and make room for somebody else, but they didn't say that. 60 years I've been working in missions. Why did I do that? Because of my home church. Because my home church challenged me into a bigger world, which would demand that I would be a bigger person than I would have been otherwise. You follow, follow the news you can go back to 9-11 or to Katrina or to the more recent uh, hurricanes or fires or floods. Whenever there is tragedy, pay attention to who's there volunteering to help. People who understand we live in a bigger world. This was brought home dramatically to me. Uh, when our children were small, I was teaching at Milligan at the time and uh, Four or five of us couples got together for Fourth of July at Dr. Miller's house. And, uh, and so we had a lot of confusion, but we also had the fireworks. And in the backyard, there was a table, and on the table were all the fireworks that we were going to shoot off later. Now, I don't know how little Adam got a hold of his sparkler, and I don't know who lit it for him. But I do know that after a while carrying it, he got a little bored, and so he put it back on the table. You got your enemy. All of a sudden, everything exploded. And I was so surprised, I took off and I ran around the house to get away from it. And then when I was around the house, I stopped and I thought, wait a minute. I'm a father. <laughs> so I ran back to make sure my kids were okay. This is what you're hearing me say today. I needed to be reminded that I was a father. We need to be reminded that there are people out there who don't have fathers, who don't have people to care for them, who aren't there to protect them. My home church did that for me. I hope your church, I believe your church, is doing that for young people here. So finally, I want a church in which my children can experience the joy of their salvation. I was flying across the country on a speaking assignment some time ago, and the flight attendant stopped. I'd had my breakfast. This old story, they, they served you breakfast in those days. And I was having a second cup of coffee. And the flight attendant stopped, looked at me, and said, what makes you so happy this morning? I didn't know I was. A little later, because I'd had two cups of coffee, I had to make a little walk back to the back of the plane. What a bunch of grumps. I don't know that I was smiling when she came by my seat, but at least I wasn't grumping. Because there is kind of in me a rather permanent state of joy. When we sing about the joy of the Lord, I know what we're singing about. I've had my share of heartache over, you can imagine these years, the joy hasn't gone away. I want my grandchildren to feel that joy. I have one other, I got to stop telling stories. Am I already over time? I probably am. Yeah, he says, that means I am, so I won't, I'll go on. I'll get to the point. The point is this. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord Again, I will say, rejoice. Hmm. 
that's kind of a command. It's, in, it's a one-word description of how life at its best is lived. Rejoicing. So I quit with these words from the psalm. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. I want my grandkids to have that joy in their heart. And I want other people's grandkids to have that joy in their heart. Don't you? <laughs>